Dripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it's Sunday the 11th of December. Welcome to The Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith and also here with us this week is Kat Arnie. Hello, Kat. Hello. Now this week we're looking at how new technologies are enabling us to probe human behaviour and even the spread of disease in greater detail than we've ever been able to do before. But today we can monitor Google and find out where the flu is by looking how many people and where are the people that are checking for symptoms of flu. We can predict the wave of the flu in the world two weeks before the World Health Organization does it. And in the news, how cancers control their own spread, the discovery of a caveman's bed, and how the brains of London cabbies grow bigger in some areas, and I don't mean Elephant and Castle, as they learn to navigate the streets of London. So, if you have any comments or questions for us, you can tweet in to at Naked Scientists. You can write on our Facebook page, which is at facebook.com slash thenakedscientists, or drop us an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. And up first, social scientists have been taking advantage of mobile phones and social networking sites to unobtrusively capture vast amounts of information in order to analyse our behaviour. And to discuss how such tactics are deployed is Dr Jason Renfrow from the University of Cambridge. Hello, Jason. Hi, Chris. So first of all, kick off and tell us, well, how have social scientists collected data in the past and what are the problems with, with using those techniques? Well, most research in psychology um, collects data in laboratory settings. So at any, just about any psychology department at any university, you will have uh, space designated for psychologists to recruit university students and then to subject these students to all sorts of um, interesting, oftentimes mundane tasks. And so essentially what ends up happening is that these university students will complete uh, a variety of different questionnaires. They may be presented with various stimuli and asked to respond to these stimuli. They may be looking at reaction time, how quickly people hit space bars, and occasionally there may be hidden cameras present in these these rooms, and the researchers will then watch the videos of these participants' uh, behavior and code them on on various um, indices. This is not, however a natural environment for those individuals. So there's a real danger that that they are going to tell you what you want to hear, or you're basically changing the outcome by the way you're measuring the data. Well, that's exactly right. In theory, psychology, and in particular social psychology, the area that I work, is interested in understanding how people behave in the natural uh, environment. And a lot of psychologists will go to great lengths to create a seemingly natural ambiance or atmosphere within these laboratory settings to simulate these real-world experiences. Of course, the big advantage of working in a laboratory is that you have a lot of control over extraneous variables, and that's one of the main reasons why researchers will do their work in labs as opposed to the real world. Given the constraints, then, what are you trying to do to get around those problems? 
Well, uh, essentially, we're trying to uh, use new technologies to uh, understand how people behave in their everyday lives. I was approached a few years ago to begin collaborating with some computer scientists, Cecilia Mascolo, who's uh, at the computer laboratory at Cambridge. And uh, together with other colleagues, we've started using the sensors in smartphones and, and really any uh, of your, your the typical smartphones that are on the market now uh, are capable of uh, measuring uh, a wide variety of different sorts of behaviors. So, for example, smartphones have accelerometers, light sensors, uh, obviously have microphones, uh, GPS. And by extracting data from these different sensors, we have the potential to um, to observe people behave in, in the natural environment. Because they're more comfortable using the phone, because they're well acquainted with using it, it's not an artificial situation for them. It is incorporated into their everyday lives. It doesn't change their behaviour, its involvement, and therefore you get a more accurate representation of what's real for that person. That's absolutely correct. I mean, um, I don't know the, the most recent statistics, but uh, millions of people have uh, carry around uh, a smartphone with them every day. And by uh, writing applications uh, that will essentially uh, extract information from these sensors and then by doing more controlled research, we can begin looking at how profiles of, of uh, behavioral profiles as, as measured by these sensors may represent certain uh, dispositions or people who are in certain certain locations, engaged in certain tasks, which can be extremely uh, informative uh, from a social scientific perspective. So what sorts of problems are you going to be focusing on? What can you use this to address? Currently, uh, the, re the work that we've been doing has, uh, has looked at emotional expression. And essentially, uh, what we've, we've done is designed an application whereby participants will carry around their phone that's running this uh, application called Emotion Sense. And the, the phone will uh, register when the user is speaking. And there's a, a predefined set of um, emotion categories in this application. And essentially, the user's speech is analyzed in real time, and uh, it, it takes uh, it looks at certain speech parameters and compares them to this predefined uh, dictionary, uh, and essentially it will make um, inferences about the likelihood that the person may be experiencing happiness, sadness, fear, anger, or be in a neutral state. And so this is one way in which we can um, look at emotional ex expression and experiences in the real world and then pair that information with location-based information as well as whether or not the user is in a social interaction and perhaps with, with whom they're interacting. That's passive acquisition of information. What about flipping the coin over and going so that the phone then does something back to the person? Is that something that could be done in the same sort of way? Yes, that's that's another direction that we're going. Uh, w w in collaboration with some psychologists and computer scientists at Southampton, we've uh, recently secured a, a funding to essentially conduct... Uh, to design behavioral interventions that we can uh, deliver using these mobile phones. Uh, behavioral interventions getting at, for example, uh, smoking cessation or weight management. So you could take, say, the behaviors that you know tend to be displayed by someone who might be about to relapse and have a cigarette when they're trying to quit because you know what those sorts of behaviors based on their profile would be and then you could trigger the phone to engage some kind of helping strategy or distraction or phone a friend to dissuade you yes, from, yes. from lighting up. 
That's exactly right. I mean, there, there have been studies that have used text messaging to help people uh, uh, quit smoking. And in, in these types of studies, essentially users or participants will uh, explain and provide information about their reasons for wanting to quit, their, their motives, and they will provide information about the triggers that make it difficult for them to quit. By providing text messages uh, without any other information, you may be sending messages whenever they're not really needed. But using the sensors in these phones, if we we might learn from the participants that on Friday nights, whenever they go to a particular pub or they're, when they're with a certain uh, group of individuals, their urge to smoke is strongest. So we can essentially program this information into the user's phone uh, and then um, uh, trigger uh, messages to them whenever they're in these vulnerable situations. There is still a slight snag with this, that being that it relies on the fact that it assumes that everyone's got a smartphone. And there, there are many people. Actually, I don't own one. There's a confession. Um, so there are many people who wouldn't have one, and they would lie outside the scope of your, your acquisition of your data. Do you think this is a problem that will be solved by just time uh, anyway? I suspect so. Uh, I think uh, adoption rates are, um, are are quite high for these smartphones. And, and you're absolutely right that there are constraints. However, uh, even the less smartphones have uh, capabilities that would still allow for delivering such interventions. They just may not have all the, the, the full uh, functionality as on the smartphones. But what I'm getting at is that a lot of the behavioral monitoring you're talking about doing is there not a risk that the kind of person who will have a phone and the kind of person who will sign up to let you eavesdrop on their behaviour may not be representative of the population at large? So you've still got a problem. Yes, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, we're, we're um, not everyone, uh, as you said, has a smartphone, and not everyone um, would be comfortable um, using such technology, even if they did have a smartphone. That that certainly will be uh, a limitation. Um, in the research that we're doing, we are uh, using other methodologies. Um, some of our collaborators have been very uh, successful at uh, delivering these interventions online. Um, so, for desktop computers or um, uh, laptops, for example. And we'll be doing other studies in more controlled settings to essentially not only see whether or not there are user differences, depending on which form of uh, the intervention they choose, uh, but also whether certain interventions may be more effective than others. All right, well, we must leave it there. Thank you very much, Jason. Jason Rimfrau from the University of Cambridge. Cat. Now, we've heard about how we can collect data, but if we collect enough data about our behaviour, we can start to make models that can begin to reveal the hidden rules of how we behave. And these models could then be used to predict important events, like changes in economic markets, and help us to work out how to react to them. And we're joined this evening by Stephen Bishop from the Department of Mathematics at University College London, and he's helping to develop just such a system. It's a project called Future ICT. So thanks for joining us, Stephen. Pleasure. Now, what I'm really interested in is this whole interconnectedness of systems. And we've seen in the recent financial problems the world's had that some dodgy mortgage deals in America have affected my parents' pension. So how interconnected is the world? How has this happened? Things have become very interconnected. In fact, so interconnected that we actually don't quite understand how they, they actually behave and respond so it's not just the fact that they are interconnected. That itself doesn't lead to problems, but it's actually the behaviour that's really that induces somehow. So it's, we need to understand the, the hidden uh, effects of that interconnectivity, the hidden behaviour. 
Now, one of the problems with this is that we're in a situation we've never, ever been in before. And with many types of science, you can sort of observe things over time and make predictions and do experiments. We're, we're in an ever-changing world. How do we gather data to help us understand and make models? Well, the data would come from a variety of sources. We're just talking about survey data or people in a laboratory. But there's all sorts of data from you know, sensors and mobile devices, but also uh, there are plenty citizen scientists who actually want to give their data to actually make a, you know, better projects to have better data. So the whole citizen science thing is becoming much, much bigger. It's collective behaviour. You're, you're running a project uh, involved in a project called Future ICT. One of the things you talk about is the idea of a planetary nervous system. What, what's that and how does that work? Well, we believe that there's so much data available now. That it's almost everything is out there and it's just a matter of trying to find, firstly, get hold of that data, but secondly, trying to understand it, really understand what it means. So we call it reality mining. So that we really understand what the real implications are of that data. So it may come from fixed sources or mobile devices or indeed, you know, media even. Uh, we do lots of uh, searching of media to try and understand trends in the media. So to make a little comparison, we've uh, previously on the show and, and a lot of people know about how we model climate systems and we take a lot of data and then make models of climate systems to see how the climate might change in the future. What sort of outcomes do you think you can predict with the kind of modelling and data gathering you're doing and, and what will people do with these models and, and the outcomes? Well, there's sort of three places I think that the models could be useful. Firstly, for policymakers, they could actually help us really make better decisions. More evidence-based policy could be done. So it stops us doing this pinball policy situation that we tend to go through in the past. So that's the sort of first aim. The second aim is businesses could really actually uh, use data and models in different ways. So that the project, the Future ICT project, would be really a, a platform for, for them to do business from, rather like Amazon now started out as a bookseller but now actually is a really a platform for many businesses to interact with. But also thirdly for the individual. I mean, individual and groups could decide you know, their collective behaviour of how they could do things collectively, which nonetheless had a, a global implication to it. So those three areas, I think, could be very useful. I know that part of the project involves getting, uh, gathering data from mobile phones and social networking. And Jason's talked a little bit about uh, the kind of things that mobile phones can do. But some people are getting very concerned about the privacy issues. And there's been some discussion about Facebook invading people's privacy. How can you get people to, to give up data without invading their privacy? Or, or do people just give you all their data and don't really care. A bit of both, really, actually. F firstly, there are many people who are quite happy to give up their data in these citizen sci science-type environments. So some colleagues from LSE did a project in the Lord Mayor's show where people gave up their data to say where they were, and in, the, in return they got back which bars were, were the best to go to with the smallest queues. So sometimes people give up data and get something in return for it. So it, it's not just a one-way thing. It should be that it goes back the other way as well. So this kind of idea of, of constantly gathering data, building models, finding out where we are and what's what's happening with all these really complicated systems, I can see that that's going to be very useful in the future. But are there any examples of where this kind of technique is going on right now? Well, in the UK, we did lots of studies, and not me personally, but um, people tried to understand how the spread of foot and mouth um, occurred. We also did things like the H1N1 spreading. So uh, colleagues of mine in the US did very big studies of that. 
And so really in these problems, we can see the, the benefit of doing scenarios. What if scenarios? What would happen if we closed the airports down? We can actually run what if scenarios much better on the computer than we can in real life. It's, it's the, what we should be doing, I think. And I guess the idea would be to avert complete disasters in the future by seeing where things are starting to go wrong and, and kind of pulling things back from the edge before they get too bad. That's correct. Coming back to your starting phrase about connectivity, we've seen several cases where connectivity causes cascades of failures, knock-on effects that we sometimes might have guessed if we'd known about them, but other times they give really you know, non-linear effects which we really cannot understand how they, they would knock on to other systems. We are all connected. Thanks very much. That's uh, Professor Stephen Bishop from UCL, and he's going to be here if you've got any questions for him. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Katani and with me, Chris Smith. Let's take a look at what else has been hitting the scientific headlines this week. Kat. There's a big story today about cancer, and cancer is a growing problem, and mainly because we're all living longer, so it means we're more likely to develop the disease at some point in our lifetime. And although we've got a lot better at treating cancer in recent years, it does become a lot more tricky to treat once it's spread through the body, and this is a process called metastasis. It's the main cause of 9 out of 10 deaths from cancer. So there's understandably a lot of interest in finding out why cancer spreads, how we can stop it. And in a paper in this week's issue of the journal Nature, Ilaria Lanky and her colleagues have made an important step forward. So what have they done? Well, cancer spreads when cancer cells break away from a tumour, the primary tumour, and travel around the bloodstream or the lymphatic system looking for new places to start growing, and they form secondary tumours. Now, the researchers were intrigued by the fact that although many cancer cells set off around the body from a primary tumour, only a very small number of them can actually form secondary tumours. So it's a bit like a dandelion throwing off thousands and thousands of tiny seeds, but only a small handful of them actually land somewhere they can grow. So is there something special about the cells that depart from the tumour and they can then settle in a new territory in the body or is there something special about the part of the body they go to that is a bit more propitious for a tumour to settle there and form? Which of those two is it? Well, it's actually a bit of both, according to this new research. And the scientists were studying an animal model of breast cancer that spreads to the lungs. And they found that secondary tumours in the lungs could only be started by a very small group of specialised cancer stem cells. And these are the immortal cells that are thought to be at the heart of many types of cancer. But they make up less than 5% of the cells coming from a primary tumour. So there's definitely something special about these particular cells that can start new tumours, but not all the available cancer stem cells went on to form secondary tumours, so there must be something special about the places they land as well. And did they look into that? How did they follow it up? Well, they homed in on a protein called periostin, which is produced by supporting cells. These are called stromal cells. And they're found in all sorts of places where healthy stem cells grow. And they're also found in places where secondary tumours grow. Now, the researchers found that periostin in the stromal cells in secondary tumours in the lungs of these animals were there. But when they looked at normal healthy lung tissue, they didn't see any periostin. And importantly, they didn't see this molecule in the lungs of mice who had breast cancer but that hadn't yet started spreading. So these arriving tumour cells must be doing something special to turn this periostin signal on then? 
Absolutely, and this is playing a vital role in allowing these cancer stem cells to take root and form secondary tumours. And when the scientists looked at mice with cancer that had been genetically engineered to lack periostin, they found a massive reduction in the number of secondary tumours, proving that it's this molecule that's extremely important for helping cancers to spread. Now, the scientists think that the cancer stem cells travelling in the body are giving out some kind of signal that makes supporting stromal cells produce periostin, and this in turn makes the cancer cells switch on processes that make them settle down and grow. So it's pretty much like these stem cells wandering around the body, shouting out a message going, I want to grow, I want to grow, and some of the stromal cells hear it and respond and make a suitable environment for the cancer stem cells to bed down and take root. And that sounds like an opportunity to intervene medically. Absolutely, and although that's still a long way off, this research is quite exciting because the processes that this team have uncovered could be at the heart of many different types of cancer and could potentially lead to new ways to stop it from spreading. Terrific. Thank you, Kat. Well, to something very different, which is some paleoanthropology. And believe it or not, scientists have stumbled upon Fred Flintstone's bed, would you believe? Um, this is a paper published in Science this week. It's by Lynn Wadley, who's a researcher at Witwatersrand University in Joburg in South Africa. And she and her colleagues have been looking at a site which is called Sibudu Cave, which is in KwaZulu-Natal province in South Africa. And they've done a big excavation there which spans having dated it some 77,000 years before present and what they've found in their excavation is evidence of these original cave dwellers who would have been what are called middle stone age people there would have been modern humans but they were stone age they were making beds and this bedding is extremely well preserved and what they can do is to use archaeobotany and looked down the microscope at the samples to work out what species were being used. And the people who made these beds were going down to a river, which was about 20 metres below the level of the cave, and they were collecting various sedges and other grasses to make their beds. That's one thing, a practice that in some places still goes on today. But intriguingly, they also found there are thin layers of leaves, and the leaves come from a particular tree, which is Cryptocorea woodii. And this tree, it's also known as the Cape Laurel, is well known to practitioners of traditional medicine in these bits of Africa because it produces various chemicals in the leaves that are insecticidal. And chemists have subsequently tested them. They've got all kinds of molecules, including alpha-pyrones in them, that destroy things like mosquitoes. So these ancient people were already very cognizant of the beneficial effects of plants and potentially plant-derived medicine because they were filling their beds with natural insecticides. And these molecules would have come out of the leaves, probably under the influence of the body heat from the person sleeping on the bed. And this would have got onto the skin of the person and made them distasteful to mosquitoes. And that went on for at least four or 5,000 years before these people also then, the archaeology reveals, uh, got into another strategy for infection control. Uh, or perhaps they just had a lot of teenagers living in this cave who wouldn't make their bed. They started to burn it. And there's evidence that they would sleep somewhere and then they would burn the bed. And this would be a very good way of, of ridding the environment of pests. But it certainly adds an important missing bit of information because we're pretty well aware of what these ancient peoples did in terms of hunting and what they ate and how they went about their business out in the field. Their domestic living arrangements, though, were much less well understood, and now this paper sheds enormous light on how these people went about their business. I'm guessing they didn't have a, a Fred Flintstone duvet cover then. Um, so I've, I've been very busy this week in the news because uh, for my day job I work for Cancer Research UK and we put out a very big story this week looking at risk factors for cancer and showing that around um, 100,000 cancers a year are caused by just four 
preventable risk factors. That's smoking, uh, drinking too much alcohol, being overweight uh, and not eating enough fruit and veg. But that's not rocket science, is it? Because we, we did know that. It's absolutely not. No, it's not. But this is the biggest paper so far to have come out that's looked at um, lots of different types of cancer and lots of different risk, risk factors and actually really been able to quantify it. And it's, it's the most reliable data we have on the links between a lot of different risk factors. So not just the big ones like smoking. Smoking is by far and away the biggest risk factor for cancer. But many other ones, things like UV, occupational exposure, all these kind of things, and being able to put some hard and fast numbers onto these about how much these different things that you can avoid can increase your risk of cancer. So can you just just very briefly give us a couple of them and explain why this adds new value and new insight into those areas? Well, in some ways, it's not surprising to a lot of us who work in cancer. Um, But obviously, the really big one is showing that almost a quarter of cancers in men are down to smoking. So that's a really, really big risk factor. But interestingly as well, one of the things that came out is that not eating enough fruit and veg is a much bigger risk factor in men than in women. And uh, this is actually because generally men don't eat enough fruit and veg compared to women. Um, So there were some interesting things that came out. But yeah, it was it was more or less a a no brainer. But it's nice to see all the data there in a way that that can really be explained and shown to people. And if people would like to follow up and and see this data, where should they go? There's a a really nice rundown of it and a really good infographic on the Cancer Research UK Science Update blog. So uh, you can go and have a look at that and look at some of the factors there. And there's a very interesting discussion going on there because some patients have felt that putting this information out is blaming them for getting cancer. And of course, for an individual cancer, it's very difficult to say exactly what caused it. Um, But it's, it's more important that we can tell people we know what can increase your risk and what can reduce your risk as well. Thank you very much, Kat. Now on to something slightly different and qualified London taxi drivers. They know their way around 25,000 streets in the capital by the time they have passed the knowledge, the exam they have to take in order to be a licensed taxi cab driver. And if you scan their brains, you'll find that the structure called the hippocampus, which contains a mental map of the world around us, is much bigger in them than it is in the average non-taxi driver. But was it bigger to begin with, and that's why they became a cab driver, or did learning London, like the backs of their hands, trigger the cabbies' brains to change? Well, now UCL's Eleanor Maguire thinks that she knows the answer. Animals who do a lot of navigating often have a bigger hippocampus than um, animals of the same species who don't engage in much navigation. So we wondered if the same would be true of the human brain and whether those who navigated a lot would also have a bigger hippocampus than those who didn't navigate so much. And so about 11 years ago, um, I studied this using magnetic resonance imaging Um, and some London taxi drivers, and we indeed found that they had greater grey matter volume in part of their hippocampus than people who didn't navigate so much. I guess one problem, though, or one criticism of that, is that it's purely observational in the sense that you look at this group, they're taxi drivers, Mm -hmm. do they have a very big hippocampus because they're taxi drivers, or do they have a job as a taxi driver because they have a very big hippocampus, which means they're endowed with a very good map in their head? And that's a very important point, and in fact that's one of the prime motivations of the current study, was to try to see if we could document within specific individuals the change that might occur in the structure of the hippocampus purely as a consequence of acquiring this very detailed mental map of London. So how did you actually do it? 
Well, what we did was we, uh, with the cooperation of the Public Carriage Office, we recruited um, trainees who are just starting their um, training as, as London taxi drivers. And we scanned their brains and we tested their memory. Um, and then off they went to uh, try to acquire the knowledge. And this takes about four years on average, three to four years. And so when people had qualified, um, we invited them back and we scanned their brains again and tested their memories again. And we were able to, in the first instance, look at people um, before they started and see if there was anything in their brain or their behaviour that could predict who would eventually qualify. Because the interesting thing is only 50% of the trainees actually went on to qualify. It's an extremely tough thing trying to become a, a, a taxi driver in London. So The odds are slightly better in medicine. Um, <laughs> did they give you any reason why they dropped out, the ones that did drop out? Because, I mean, there may have been perfectly sound reasons yes. other than cognitive ones. Absolutely. That they I think withdrew. it's... It's difficult to know. It's probably quite a heterogeneous group in the sense that some people probably did find it very tough going and they just didn't have the the navigational sort of skills to, to, to pursue this. But it's also the case that, you know, embarking on this training can be time-consuming, can take time away from your family. It's a big financial commitment. And in the current climate, undoubtedly, some individuals had to withdraw as a consequence of those sort of issues. So it's not an easy, um, it's not easy to know exactly why people dropped out. And sometimes people can say they dropped out for one reason, but maybe it was another reason and so on. So, So it is quite a mixed group. But we did end up with a group that didn't qualify, a group that did qualify. And then, of course, we had control participants who didn't engage in any training at all, but still uh, we we scanned at the start and at the end of the study, just like the trainees. And the mo- probably the most important question is, those people who you scanned at baseline yeah. and then they became qualified taxi drivers, uh-huh. did you see any differences in their brains? We did. For those who qualified, we found that um, between um, the start and the finish of the study, um, the back part of their hippocampus had um, increased in volume and no other part of the brain had changed, just very specifically this back part of the hippocampus, which is what we found in our previous sort of observational studies where we compared taxi drivers to non-taxi drivers. So it, it was fully in line with our, our previous results. And the controls, they didn't show any changes? No, the controls and those who didn't qualify, their brains remained exactly the same from start to the finish of the study. Now, what about other measures of cognition? Because you said you also tested their memories in Mm. other ways. So rather than just looking at the structure of the brain, you also looked at function. What were the differences then before and after? Well, obviously, the first thing we did was we tested people's general intellectual ability just to make sure that there was no differences in that regard. So the, the IQs, for example, of, of the individuals were all very similar. Uh, we then tested um, their basic knowledge of London in terms of understanding spatial relationships between landmarks in London. And then we did a whole range of other memory tests that looked at their ability to remember um, verbal material, that's, you know, words or pictures or other types of spatial information. So we did those tests at the start and then we did them a parallel versions of those tests at the end of the study. And how did the 
results of the before and after compare amongst all the groups? Well, we found that um, the controls didn't change um, and we found that the uh, trainees, particularly the qualified trainees, became much better um, in terms of their knowledge of, of London and l the proximity of landmarks to each other, which of course you'd expect because they were trying to actually learn that information. But what was most interesting was that on other tests of spatial uh, memory, the those who qualified actually performed worse um, at the end of the study than they did at the start. And this is something we found previously in our studies of taxi drivers, that although they are very expert in terms of navigating around London, perhaps there's a little bit of a price to pay for that expertise in that they become a little bit worse at dealing with information of other kinds. And that kind of makes sense, you know, there's, something's got to give when, when you're taking in a lot of information. And of course, you're now left with another problem, which perhaps you'll answer in another 10 years, which is those people that didn't drop out and did show this change, is there something special about them in that their brain is more adaptable? It can incorporate new cells, make more grey matter when they need to do a task like this, compared with people who find it less easy? Yes, I think that is another important question. And so we must consider you know, the reasons for why people failed to qualify. It may be that there are genetic predispositions to hippocampal plasticity in the individuals who qualified, allowing them to expand their knowledge and so expand the volume of their posterior, the back part of their hippocampus. And there may be other individual differences that come into play as well. So I think this is a very important issue because, you know, what we all want to know is, given any individual, what can they hope to achieve? How much can they learn? And, you know, what capacity does their memory and their hippocampus have? So I think it's going to be very important to understand these individual differences in future studies. That was Eleanor Maguire from University College London and she published that work this week with her colleague Catherine Woollett in this month's Current Biology. Cat. And now with a look at what else has been sparking scientific interest around the globe, including how females fend off unwanted male attention by seeking out more attractive company to associate with, here's Mira St Thillingham with this week's Naked Scientist's Newsflash. The recent resurgence in bed bug infestations taking place in Western countries is owing to the biting insects being re-imported from abroad rather than reoccurring locally. North Carolina State University's Kobe Shell analysed the genetic diversity of bedbugs collected from outbreaks along Route 95 on the US East Coast. Because we found this extremely high genetic diversity in populations along the East Coast, that should suggest to us that there are multiple introductions of bedbugs coming into the United States from multiple sources. And that sort of pattern would argue against sort of a local resurgence of bedbugs. It suggests that they're coming from other places. It's difficult to place the blame on any one group, but I think international sort of globalization and commerce and increased transport are very likely involved. Working rotating night shifts can increase a woman's risk of developing type 2 diabetes by up to 60%. This appears to be at least partly down to night work also causing weight gain. Announcing the results in the current edition of PLOS Medicine, Harvard scientist Anne Pan looked at data from 170,000 women aged 25 to 67 who'd been followed up for between 18 and 20 years. Compared to women who do not do any rotating shift work, women who have already done 
about one to two years of shift work has about 5% increased risk. For women who do three to nine years shift work, the increased risk jumps to about 20% increased risk. And if you go higher, more than 20 years of rotating shift work, uh, the increased risk is about 60% increase. Body weight explains a lot of the associations. People who do night shift work gain more weight during the follow-up compared to women who do not do shift work. Non-receptive female fish resort to hanging out with a more attractive counterpart to divert unrequited male mating advances away from themselves. Working with guppies, Exeter biologist Safi Darden found that, given a choice, females for whom the time wasn't right would actively seek out a fitter female for company. Now that we knew that females would receive less attention if they were with a more sexually attractive female, did they actually actively make this choice to spend time with a more sexually attractive female to avoid male attention? And when we gave females that weren't receptive uh, to male attention a choice to um, swim next to a more attractive female or an equally attractive female, we found that she preferred to swim in close proximity to the more attractive female. When we tested fish that were receptive, they didn't have any such preference. This has important implications for how these and other fish organise their social hierarchies and it was published this week in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society B. And all of those stories, along with the references, are on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash news. Now, in May 1985, scientists discovered the hole in the ozone layer. Two years later, governments around the world signed up to the Montreal Protocol to phase out the use of the chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, that damage ozone. So, why can't a similar thing happen when it comes to climate change? Planet Earth's Richard Hollingham went to speak with Jonathan Shanklin, one of the original ozone hole discoverers. We've got the data from Antarctica, which I'd plotted up. And one of the key things was that we could see something systematic going on in our data. So let's look at this graph, and it's, it's plotted by hand, time hand, before, all, time all before hand computers plotted, would do drawn this. In, on paper with pencil and a ruler to draw the best fit line through the data. But the point is, anybody can see that something's happening. You can see ever so clearly that ozone amounts are going down, and that was really absolutely key. Once you have something systematic then something must be causing it. And the question was, what? This is the the Nature paper um, we've also got here. And this is interesting because figure two of the Nature paper, again, obviously originally drawn by hand and and then, then printed, you made a correlation between this decline in ozone and CFCs. Yes, there have been... Thoughts that CFCs could affect the ozone layer for some time, but the predictions were that they should be affecting the ozone layer high above the tropics. What we actually found was low above the Antarctic, quite a different place, but because there's been this expectation that chlorofluorocarbons could affect the ozone layer, we thought, well, this is probably the case. And so when we plotted the graph, we guided the eye by choosing the right scale so that at a glance you could see that there was a correlation between ozone amounts declining and the CFC amounts going up. Okay, so the Montreal Protocol is signed. I mean, a huge success. 
in terms of environmental treaties, because getting that done two years after your discovery, why then is there still an ozone hole over the Antarctic and now what many people are describing as an ozone hole over the Arctic as well? The Montreal Protocol has been incredibly successful. Today, every single one of the UN member states has signed up to it. But these CFCs are very, very stable. They persist in the atmosphere a long time. And although it's very clear that we've passed the maximum in the atmosphere, the amounts are going down, the treaty is working, there's still so much around that ozone destruction can take place whenever the conditions are suitable. Now, in the Antarctic, they're suitable every year. In fact, this year we've had one of our deepest and largest ozone holes actually on record. Also, the conditions were suitable in the Arctic this year. So all this points to much greater complexity, Jonathan, than perhaps you, you first imagined when you plotted this very simple graph. It is a lesson in how quickly we can change our atmosphere. This happened in the space of about a decade between it being detectable to being a full-blown ozone hole. Let's go back then to, to this paper, this, this graph, and the Montreal Protocol, which is given as, a, as an example of a huge success when it comes to these sorts of treaties. Is that repeatable when it comes to, to global warming, to climate change? There are differences. With the CFCs, just about everybody was on side. The manufacturers were quite happy to switch to a different product, it was very easy to switch to a different product. Also, the public don't like holes. So calling it an ozone hole, that must be bad just because of the name. And also the link between increased ultraviolet light and cancer. And again, cancer is one of our real banes of today's society. So if something's causing cancer, we've got to get rid of it. So everything worked in favour of doing something about the ozone hole. With the greenhouse gases, it's much harder. A, greenhouse warming sounds nice. But secondly, it will take a very big change in lifestyle for individuals to reduce their dependence upon substances that get converted into carbon dioxide. And also, the manufacturers, the, the industry, the oil industry in particular, is rather reluctant to stop selling oil. There's no cheap alternative that could be widely sold. Um, I think we'll be lucky to get a treaty that's effective like the Montreal Protocol was. Which might explain why the 194 countries who've been meeting in Durban this week to discuss ways to prevent dangerous global climate change have been struggling to hammer out a deal. That was Jonathan Shanklin from the British Antarctic Survey talking to Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham. And there's more Planet Earth podcasts on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash planet earth. From protons to photons and gluons to muons, the Naked Scientists, science that's fundamentally more fun. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. This is The Naked Scientist with Katani and with me, Chris Smith. This week, we're looking at ways to collect data that can tell us more about human behaviour and how this data can even lead to changes in policy. Now, almost every aspect of science relies on statistics to decide whether results are valid or not. But when statistics were invented, there was no such thing as social media. Twitter and Facebook didn't exist. 
And given that people are increasingly using this sort of crowdsourced data to do their research, are old-style stats still up to the job? Well, Professor Arnoldo Frigesi is the Director of Statistics for Innovation at the University of Oslo in Norway, and he's got a perspective on this. That's true. So all statistics is dead. Two big things are happening. One is the data basis is changing dramatically. Before, we had these nicely built-up case control studies, taking people that had a disease, people that didn't have a disease, and comparing them carefully, uh, maybe 20 in one group, 55 in the other one. Now we have Twitter and Facebook. Now we have millions of people out there that tell us about their diseases and about their bioeffects and their symptoms. And that we have to use this data to find out, as we did before in case control studies, if a drug works or not. I mean, basically, with that level of uh, user engagement, where before we had small trials and we had to make sure we controlled everything very, very tightly, now we can do effectively massive trials. So the noise is actually enormous. Enormous, enormous, yet you can still extract very meaningful data at very high statistical significance from that because of the size of the sample. Exactly. So, so we're trading sample size with accuracy or bias. And we have to correct things because, of course, not everybody's using the Internet, right? And we have to correct to get the right population, and this we can do. That's not difficult. But today we can monitor Google, for example, and find out where the flu is. And there, is, there are papers out there that show that by looking how many people and where are the people that are checking for symptoms of flu, we can predict the wave of the flu in the world two weeks before the World Health Organization does it. Or we, yeah, or we can, for example, use the happiness of people to find out if the stock values are going up or down. <laughs> well, this was like the, the paper so in well. Science that came yeah. out uh, in the last couple of months using Twitter messages to look at dysphoria and happiness and how this evolves as the day goes on. We're all happier in the morning, miserable by evening, <laughs> except for one little surge before bed. We won't go into maybe why that happens. And it's true regardless of creed and culture, it turns out. So, I mean, I was amazed by that, actually, and the fact that you can do these sorts of experiments now with high statistical significance, and you don't actually have to leave your lab or recruit people. You just look at data that's in the public domain very easily. Mm. This is really changing completely. Also, how statistic has to work, right? Now we have to use enormous data sets, which are very bad, where we need models to filter out the noise. We need to correct biases. We need to find out if things are independent. Of course, if we check out there how many people like Berlusconi today, we have to find... <laughs> not, well, he not, likes not, himself, he presumably. He likes himself, but not many others. <laughs> so you, you need to find people that are a bit independent of each other, right? So think that Facebook is an enormous network where you and your friends are connected by edges. And now we have to find independent people. We can't take you and your friends. You mean mostly the same. So that's very boring. We have to essentially split up this network in independent clusters. So this is a completely new story. We have to sample networks to find independent units so that we can, in my words, reduce variances. So but how is statistics responding to this? How are people trying to, to control for this new domain that we find ourselves in, this new regime of doing research? Mm. I think this is coming. It's not yet a daily thing that we do. No, it's difficult. I mean, Facebook, they're not so happy to give you all the data, right? So it's, it's much to do here still to get this power out there. But for example, if you move slightly, let's take a little bit an easier situation. Let's take, for example, a financial institution that has out there millions of credit cards and they're checking, trying to find out if there are frauds, right? So suddenly they also have enormous quantity of data, millions of clients 
each of them with a little data, not very much. And we have to find out which of these credit cards is doing something strange. So now we statisticians again in this situation that we're trying to find surprises, millions of possibilities, millions of tests in some sense, and we're looking for surprises. Again, a dramatic change to what was before, right? Before you had your own nice hypothesis, you had your gene that you liked very much and you would spend all your life to study that, that gene. Now we have millions of genes and we're checking them all to find out if there is anything interesting here. So the scientist doesn't have any hypothesis anymore. They say, oh, I have data. Here are my data. Find something useful, please. So suddenly the statistician is playing a completely different role. We have to find the things not just check if they're true or not. The genome-wide association study, where it's sort of changes in search of a disease now, rather than a disease, now let's find the genetic underpinnings. That's right, that's right. So it's really changing the way we are building up statistics as a mathematical instrument, because statistics is mathematics, right? And so we have to compute things that are called p-values, that are probabilities, that a certain gene is in some sense important for you to describe your disease. And now we, we are producing lists of candidates, lists of hypotheses that are maybe useful. And I can't tell to my biologist, if I give him my list of 100 genes that I found after a careful statistical study, I can't tell him that these 100 genes are really all important, but I can tell him by using something called false discovery rate that 20% of them are wrong. We don't know which 20. No, we don't know which 20. But, but that's all right. He can, he, can, he can cope with that. I mean, he came with only data, and he gave him quite an interesting answer. So what's the next step, then? Uh, will we see bioinformatics being taught very differently at university? Because when I was doing biometry at medical school, uh, we were taught about T-tests and students' T-tests and Gaussian and distributions. <laughs> and you know, we were taught this is the circumstance when you apply this. It sounds to me like we're going to have to go back to kindergarten statistically for researchers, basically, to understand how to use the tools we have in this whole new research setting. Yeah. No, you, you're right. Statistics is more difficult now, and, and statistics is more present in the core of medical science. So before it was something that came at the end of your laboratory work, and when everything was done, you had your nice Excel file or your nice table, and then you would do your statistics. Now statistics comes from the beginning, is a core instrument of discovery. And it's more difficult, so we have to do partial differential equations and networks and all this stuff that is a bit more difficult. Well, it's good for you, though, isn't it? Because it means you're not going to be out of a job. No. <laughs> no. It just I means that researchers main, like main, me are going to find it much harder. We have to find a statistician. To, well, we have to find a statistician, yeah. but also when we try and read papers, picking out whether or not the numbers are meaningful yeah. and it's solid, quite, is going to be much more difficult. Much I, I guess most papers will have to float past someone like you yeah. for you to unpick them and decide whether or not what they're saying is really a valid conclusion. Yeah. I think in this world where competition is very strong, where you need really that little advantage to make a progress, we're looking really to second-order effects, to small things, 1%, 2%. And these things are much more difficult to find. And if you think now in a different world in the industry, for example, out there that use statistics also to make progress, of course, they need to find those small differences or small incremental advantages to beat the competition. And now you need statistics at a much more refined level. You need to extract much information from your data that is hidden, interactions, dependencies, um, things that happen together and therefore give an advantage. 
and lies, damn lies and very complicated statistics from Arnoldo Fregesi from the University of Oslo. It's The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. And we're joined this week by Dr Jason Rempfra from Cambridge University and Professor Stephen Bishop from University College London. Our topic up for discussion is how new technology can help us to learn things we couldn't previously understand about how humans behave and then use that information to make predictions uh, which will help people in the long run. Kat? We've had a question in from T.O. Gibson in Milton Keynes who wants to know, how does a computer know how to read? I mean, it's, it's just zeros and ones, so how does a computer actually spot meaningful trends in this very complex social data that we're now providing? Hi, Kat. Actually, well, pattern recognition and data mining to reveal trends in data is a big part of computer science today, actually. So we're learning more and more about that. Because the guys who did the work on Twitter and Facebook... Um, they were using, I mean, two billion tweets or something to work out what kind of mood people were in at what sort of the day. Uh, so you're just telling the computer to look for certain words, and uh, certain words mean a good mood, certain words indicate, on average, a bad mood, and then you can extrapolate from that. So the computer isn't actually reading, it's basically looking for trends, which you tell it to look for. Correct. Um, yes, Evil Eye Monster says on Twitter, how do you analyse data without having a presupposition of what you're actually looking for? Because that's important too. You, you're actually biasing the search system. Actually, different people can look at the same data set and try and find different information from it. So it's not necessarily one one approach. Different people will have try and tease out different bits from the same data source. We've got a question as well from Tina Valerine in Norwich, and she says, oh, all this data analysis is all very well, but really, is it any more complicated than just handwriting analysis gone bonkers? Is this really meaningful? <laughs> Well, I think in the case of uh, detecting uh, emotions from speech, I mean, the, this is a, a very well-established line of research. And uh, we, we can ask uh, individuals how they're feeling, and we can use other sorts of methods to assess uh, emotions. And essentially what we are, are doing are identifying speech cues that are valid indicators of people's psychological states. Uh, and so in that sense, I think it's a perfectly valid and uh, robust method. I quite like this point, which has been made by Paul Harrington in Cambridge, and he says, um, this sounds like your work specifically, um, a good thing for those with autistic spectrum disorders who struggle to accurately read affect, meaning mood and, and behaviour in others, how might their smartphones be able to help? Do you think this will work in real time? Uh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, the computer scientists that I've been working with have, have shown that actually the, these phones are very powerful and can uh, analyze this uh, information in real time on the phones themselves or to send them uh, onto a server and, and, and bring it back. Uh, really, one of the big limitations with doing these analyses on the phone uh, are uh, battery, uh, the, the batteries of the phones. There was a report from MIT, the media lab there, in the last five years or so, and they had made a pair of spectacles that would use a camera to look at expressions on the faces of people that, say, a person with an autistic disorder was talking with and could vibrate in the person's pocket if the facial expression they were showing showed that they were reacting negatively to things they were saying. Yeah, I, I, and certainly I think that um, this is just a t looking at uh, another source of, of data, looking at speech, and, and could do the same thing. Terrific. Thank you very much, both of you. Uh, that was Jason Rempfrau from Cambridge University and Stephen Bishop from University College London. And on the subject of hard questions, let's now join Diana O'Carroll, who's been, rather bizarrely, diving down to explore the sex life of fish. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from alpha to omega. This week, fishing for fun. Uh, this is John Gamble in Louisville, Kentucky. I know that in order to encourage mammals and other 
creatures to reproduce, there's always a sort of a payback. And that makes sense as long as there's some kind of physical contact between the, the, the mating partners. But I cannot figure out what it is that induces fish to get a big charge out of just squirting their seed into the water. Do fish get the same thrill out of the same things as we do? Hello, I'm Mark Briffer, a marine biologist at Plymouth University. The fundamental question here is whether fish are ever capable of experiencing pleasure at all, including at the spawning event when they release their gametes. One problem that we have is that we can't exactly go up to a fish and ask, how was it for you, darling? And this is a general problem in understanding what feelings non-human animals might or might not experience. One area that has been the subject of a large amount of research in fish is the experience not of pleasure, but of pain. In an experiment where rainbow trout received an injection that would have been painful to humans, they showed behaviours like rubbing the affected area, which went beyond a simple reflex response. And there were also specific nerve fibres that responded to the injection. Therefore, fish might experience something akin to pain in humans. As far as pleasure goes, there is some anecdotal evidence that when client fish interact with cleaner ass, they might enjoy the touch sensations of being cleaned. In the case of spawning, we know about the hormonal control of the event. We don't yet know whether it's an ecstatic experience. But it's perhaps nice to think that there's the possibility that cichlids can get their kicks and brill get a thrill from spawning. It's possible that there is some sort of neurological reward for fish when they reproduce, but we don't yet know if it's pleasurable or if it makes the uh, water move. On the forum, Clifford Kay reasoned that fish must have some sort of reward, especially salmon who have to travel hundreds of miles upstream, over waterfalls, through rapids, getting hungry, battered and bruised all the way. Then they either lay eggs or fertilise them, and then they die. Speaking of things that seem far away... Hello, Naked Scientists. My name is Chris Markley, and as you may have guessed, I have a question. When I lay down, my feet appear farther away from me compared to when I am standing up. I wear contacts during the day and glasses in the evening. Could this be a product of my corrective eyewear or a manifestation of my brain due to different visual reference points? Thank you. Do you have to be very tall for this to happen? And why might your feet seem so very far away? Send your answers to chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can write them on the forum at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. You can Twitter at Naked Scientists or you can check out our Facebook page. Thank you, Diana O'Carroll, with our question of the week. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you very much for joining us and thank you to our production team, Tom Simpkins, Miracentha Lingam, Hannah Critchlow, Ben Valsler and Diana O'Carroll. And also thank you to our guests this week, Jason Renfro and Stephen Bishop, who joined us this evening in the studio. Now, next week we have a Naked Scientist Christmas special. If you have any seasonal or festive-related questions for us, then tweet your questions to at Naked Scientists or write them uh, to nakedscientist.com slash Facebook. Have a great evening. See you soon. The Naked Scientists podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. Thank you.